Susan McKenzie, uh, longtime friends of ours, were visiting the area over the last month. And uh, when they arrived, it was cold and raining. <laughs> and that weather continued for a number of days. And when that happens, you know, what do you say to visitors? Oh, this is so unusual. <laughs> we never have this kind of weather. And they look at each other and they smile and say, like to say, sure, <laughs> we know. Well, it's the same in the Christian life. There's good days and there's bad days. And last week we saw Elijah in a contest with the prophets of Baal. was at the heights of spiritual victory. In weather terms, the sun was shining and there wasn't a cloud in the sky. And then everything changed. Black clouds, spiritual darkness rolled in. And he Father, we come to you. Unfold your word to us. Help us to see your working in the life of this prophet and in the lives of others around him. Lord, we want to take the truths that we see here. We want to apply them to our lives. So I pray for each one here. I thank you for them and pray that their hearts would be open to your word. So Father, work in us and again, work through us that we might live our lives for your glory. We ask this and we give thanks through the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you've got your Bible, turn to 1 Kings chapter 19, where Charles read. Go back there. And that first verse that he read said, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the servants. Well, as this chapter opens, we see three distinct personalities. First, there's King Ahab. To use an old school expression, he's a milk toast. He's weak. He's a sissy. And he's got a problem. So he runs to his wife and he whines to her about this bully 
who's killed all the prophets of Baal. He doesn't have the courage to say it this way. He doesn't have the weakness to do it about this representative of God. Well, he's weak, but he knows that his wife is tough. He knows that she's a woman who can take care of business. So he tells her what Elijah has done. Now look closely at that verse. Ahab has just witnessed the power of God at the confrontation with the prophets of Baal and Elijah. In answer to Elijah's prayer, fire fell from heaven and consumed the sacrifices, the wood, water, right? So you'd think that he would report to her the awesome power of God. Not at all. Nothing like that. Instead, he tells Jezebel about all the things that Elijah has done. You see, God has no place in the minds Unbelievers tend to focus on secondary causes for these things that happen. They tend to attribute what the Lord has done to human effort. So whether God's acting in blessing or in judgment, they can't see. They can't see Him, and they focus on the means or the instruments that He is using. So if the Lord uses an individual to punish a sinful nation, that person becomes the object of their hatred. They don't want to repent. They don't want to give glory to God. They're not interested in humbling themselves and confessing their sin. There's just no thought of giving glory to God. And that's the way it is. King Ahab. When drought and famine came upon the nation, he ascribed it to Elijah. He got up in his face and said, are you the one that's troubling Israel? Instead of perceiving that it was the Lord taking issue with their sinfulness and that in fact he was the one who was troubling Israel. So Ahab's mind is occupied with Elijah recounts the fact that he killed all these prophets of Baal. But he has a reason for doing this. He wants to get his wife to repent. He wants her to get angry. Angry enough to go after God's servant. Ahab is a despicable character. His wife, Jezebel, is an immoral woman. As they sometimes say, she's rough and ready. The effect of Ahab's whining has an immediate effect on her. Those were her prophets 
Her temper's on full boil and she's gonna do something about it. The only way that she's gonna be happy is eliminating the object of her hatred without it. Here's a side benefit. It's gonna make her wimpy husband happy. And the third person in this drama is Elijah. Last time we saw him exhibit challenged 450 false prophets, defeated them by the power of God, and it was a great victory. But like the title slide says, he is a man just like us. And this is a new day. Yesterday's victory isn't going to suffice for today. So here he is, challenged again. But this time, it's not 450 prophets. It's one woman. And she's getting ready to take his life. Verses 2 and 3. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them. By this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And he left his servant there. In Psalm 118, David says this The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's true. But Elijah hadn't committed that verse to memory. And Jezebel threatened him. Jezebel's fired off his angry message to Elijah. You've got one day left on earth, and by sundown tomorrow, you'll be dead. So her hatred for the Lord is going to be taken out on his servant. That's always the way it is. Think back. Think back to when the plagues were falling in Egypt. And King, or Pharaoh was there. He was subjected to plague after plague after plague. Who did he like? He refused to bow before the Lord and blame think about Stephen in the book of Acts. He's preaching and they surround him. He gives them the gospel but instead of receiving it they gnash their teeth at him. They drag him outside the city and they stone him to death. So finding out that Elijah has slain her prophets has enraged Jezebel. God's swearing by her God, she pronounces a death sentence on Elijah. It just reveals the hardness of her heart. Now you know, sinners don't reach this point overnight. This is something that happens over time. 
It develops as their conscience resists the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Light is rejected over and over again, and the very thing that should soften them and humble their hearts actually makes them harder. They become resentful and hostile towards the things of God, and that's just right. Jean opposes the Lord, but his hand is on his servant. And instead of ordering her officers to kill him immediately, she sends him this message. He gets it, and he realizes she's gunning for him. Now remember, he just came off a spiritual victory. Over and over, we've seen him receive the word of the Lord and respond to that. How does he respond to her message? Is he going to wait on the Lord and hear from him again? Is he going to spend time in prayer, seeking guidance from the Lord? Unfortunately not. He receives her message, and he folds up like a sheep. He just can't handle it. Instead of trusting the Lord, he takes matters into his own hands. His eyes are occupied with this lady's work. So his heart melts and he takes off. Away he goes. Here it is again. Psalm 118.6 The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man or a woman do to me? The only way he's going to be the same for us. There are promises in the word of God for us to claim. Isaiah 12, 2, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. Isaiah 26, 3, Elijah's mind wasn't fixed on the Lord. Fear had overwhelmed him. He'd lost sight of the Lord, and he'd lost sight of those past victories. All he could see was the wrath of Jezebel. Well, what is it? What is it about this woman that completely destroys his faith? Let's take a little look at her. Back in 1 Kings 16, Verses 31 and 32. It says, Ahab took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Baal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Well, Jezebel's father, King, uh, King Abel, 
was born in 915 BC, and he was originally a priest of Ashtoreth, another false god. Her father, being this priest, really tells you how she got influence, why she was so zealous in the promotion of these Phoenician gods. Once she was in Israel, married to Ahab. Her father, Ethbaal, assassinated the king of Tyre. He ascended the throne when he was about 36 years old. He created a new dynasty and expanded the king of Tyre to include all of Phoenicia, including the city of Cyrus. That murder tells us a lot about him and explains the way Jezebel wants to Daughters often take their cues and their directions from their father. Ethbaal gave Jezebel to Ahab as his wife, and he created an alliance there. He established close diplomatic ties with him, and the result was major Phoenician influence in Israel. So no doubt Elijah knew this background, her family's history, murderous activity, Here's the way I think Elijah is thinking. He knows that Jezebel has murdered other prophets of God. And he thinks to himself, hmm, I'm a prophet of God. I think I'm in trouble here. He turns and he runs for his life. He's heading for Beersheba in the south of Israel a long way from Jezebel. Verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life. For I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept. running all day long. He gets to this place, sits down under the tree, and he prays, just kill me, Lord. It's just too much. He's forgotten about this intimate relationship he has with the Lord. And all he sees is this furious woman that's going to kill him. He's lost sight of the God that fed him. goes to sleep. Verse 5 again. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. 
journey was too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights from Horeb to Mount Islam. He gained enough strength to continue his journey, and after forty days he's covered two hundred and fifty miles. So he's gone from all the way at Beersheba all the way down right to the bottom. Verse 9. There he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? We can only speculate again. Why did he go Well, it was certainly a place of significance in the Old Testament. It was there that Jehovah appeared to Moses in the burning bush. It was there that the law was given to Israel. It was there that Moses communed with God for 40 days and 40 nights. You know, we can't be sure of its reasons for going there, but I think he was putting a big distance between him and Jezebel. So here he is, hiding in a cave, and a familiar refrain appears. And the word of the Lord Previously, the word of the Lord is directed him to Cherith, to Zarephath, to the confrontation with Ahab and the prophets. But this time, I think we've got something a little different here. At the beginning of this verse, it says, Behold, which means something extraordinary is about to happen. And then it says, He said to him. I think this is more than a message. I think this is a visit from a divine person. And it could very well have been the Son of God. The question is, what are you doing here, Elijah? Well, we weren't there. And we didn't hear the question. But you know, in language, there's emphasis on certain words. We don't know which word he was emphasizing. Maybe it was, what are you doing here, Elijah? Is your purpose good or evil? Yet 
Elijah's reply in verse 10. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only am left. And they seek my faith, my life to take it away. Well, when you get asked a question, sometimes you it's not funny. But he is truthful. And I think this reply comes from his heart. And for the most part, he is telling the truth. He doesn't give a good reason for running away. But on the other side, the Lord doesn't rebuke him either. He's distressed about the way the Israelites have dishonored the Lord. The glory of God is important to him. And he is distressed. He's deeply affected to see God's law broken, his authority disregarded, his worship despised, and homage paid to these lifeless idols. He's tried to put a stop to it, but it was in vain, and he just doesn't think he should spend any more time on this unrepentant thing. And he thinks he's the last those who love the Lord and serve him and is going to be killed for his trouble. Well, he pours out his heart and he gets a gracious response from the Lord. Verses 11 and 12. And he said, that is the Lord, he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord Behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a rolling dealing graciously with him. That's evident. The Lord hasn't abandoned him in his time of weakness and need. He's dealt with him in a tender way. Psalm 103, 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion for those who fear him. Elijah did fear the Lord. Yes, his faith has failed at this point, but the Lord didn't turn his back on him. He was given sleep, he was given food, he was strengthened, given strength that would give him supernatural strength to go for those 40 days and 40 nights. 
is just one among a multitude of God's children. Now, verse 13. And when Elijah heard it, that is, the whisper, the still small voice of God, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. Verse 18. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not been. He wraps his face in his cloak. That tells us a couple of things. First of all, his reverence for the Lord. He's in his presence. And then secondly, it's a sense of his own unworthiness. You get that throughout the scriptures. The seraphim in Isaiah 6 covered their faces in the presence of the Lord. When Abraham was in the presence of the Lord, he said, I'm just dust and ashes. And when Moses encountered God in the burning bush, he hid his face. You know, sometimes when we get in trouble, we're apt to look to the Lord to answer our prayers with miraculous signs and wonders. And when that doesn't happen, we think, the Lord's not listening. The Lord's listening to me. Don't gauge the power and presence of God strictly by abnormal manifestations, extraordinary visitations. The wonders of the Lord are
This is in nature, grace usually works together. So, and it's not perceived except by the So excitement and sensationalism are not necessarily marks of the wicked God. God's blessing is found among those who persevere quietly by the power of the Holy Spirit. Elijah thought the work was going to be accomplished through him alone. The lesson he had to learn was that he was just one of a multitude, seven servants of God. But he's not finished yet. He's going to be restored. He's going to return to Damascus and he's going to continue serving the Lord. That's the next So let me make some practical applications from this passage. What can we learn from this episode in the life of Elijah? There are here that can be applied to our lives. And that's going to make us better servants of the Lord. Fear no one. somebody one time and said, ask me that. This guy was a big guy. What if he punches us out? Maybe he will. Don't fear Here's those other two verses I gave you earlier. Isaiah 12, 2, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. And then Isaiah 26, 3, you will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind stays on you, because he trusts. Second thing we can learn, don't get discouraged. We all have times when we want to give up. We want to throw in the Call it quits. Here's Elijah, God's prophet, that had seen fire fall from heaven. Lord, it's too much. It's too much. Take my life. It'd be better if all this was over. But the encouraging thing to me, the Lord's still with him. The Lord's still working in his life. still on his side. So no matter how bleak things look, take courage. The Lord is going to continue to use you just as he did. Thirdly, walk humbly with the Lord. The presence of the Lord and his still small voice Throughout the scriptures, you can see 
those who were in the presence of God bowed before him, covered their faces, and made him humble. And then finally, the Lord has a multitude of other believers that can strengthen you and encourage you in Elijah said, somebody who can encourage them in the middle of Elijah was a man just like this. He was just a human being. But the Lord used him. And he can use any of us. Let's pray. Father, we remember the Remind us, Father, of all of those things that you have done in our lives. Draw us closely back to you. Give us your strength, Lord, to do the things that we're supposed to do. We'll come back and we'll give thanks. We'll come back and we'll praise you. We'll come back and give glory to you. Lord, this is your work. Work in us, work through us, and bless others through us.